Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Justin Nasiri. Justin is the CEO of Captivate AI. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. Excellent. Justin, would you mind giving us 60 seconds to 90 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. I went to school at the Naval Academy and then served on submarines for about five years. Uh, Got out, went to business school at Stanford and then started a company called Storybox. We raised $3 million from Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt. It was all about marketing technology. Went through the full roller coaster of hiring, layoffs and firings and did that about a dozen times and then started my next company, Captivate.ai. And now I live in Denver, Colorado, which I'm head over heels in love with. Excellent. So Justin, let's start with the joys and tribulations of being a founder and the difference between first time and second time. So let's talk about uh, the first time round. What didn't you know that you realize now you didn't know? I think one thing that stands out is I was I was in a rush. You know, I, I graduated from business school. I started this company, and I, I'm glad that I did it. But I realized if I had gone and worked at other startups, I could have learned so much on someone else's dollar. And I think that a lot of the mistakes that I made a first time round, I, I didn't have to make. I could have learned from someone else, and. You know, looking back, I was probably late 20s when I started my first company. And it's like, wow, if we work till we're 65, that's that's a solid 30, 40 years of working. Like, what's the rush? Why not build a network, build skill sets? So I think that's the first thing I didn't realize because coming from the military, there was so much I didn't even know about how companies operate. And so even just working in a handful of startups, I would have had a sense for, okay, this is how sales goes. This is for how marketing goes. But I really had to reinvent the wheel. And I feel like that's maybe a second thing is that prioritization is something that I, I don't think I really learned at the time. And when you're, when you're in your 20s and you're on your first startup, you can work you know, 20 hours a day. You can really grind yourself in. And that's what I did for years. But in retrospect, so much of where I spent my time and energy was was just a waste. If I had just taken the time to say, what are the three most important things today and done that, even if I had left a a to-do list a a mile deep, it wouldn't have mattered because those things are less important and they change day to day. And, you know, one last thing that I'll, I'll say is coming from the military, I told myself I was a good manager a good leader. And I wrote my essays for business school about that. But I didn't realize into maybe four or five years into my first company, I'm not a great manager. I'm not able to really get that incremental 10% out of the people I manage. And I think if I had known that, I would have made different hiring decisions. I would have found someone who really was a good manager. And I could have focused on product and sales where I excel, rather than trying to lead a team where I really made a, a lot of blunders that that cost us a lot of time and money. Wow, those are fabulous insights. And God knows they're not, I I don't think you'll be, you're the first and you certainly won't be the last to make those kind of mistakes. So in terms of the first hire that you made in Storybox, what was that? The first person was a, a CTO, a chief technology officer. Okay. And why did you pick that as the first appointment? I was based in San Francisco. And I think the Silicon Valley mindset was you need to have an engineer on your team. You need to have an in-house development team. And that may have shifted in the 10 years since I started Storybox. Probably not, though. And what was funny was at the time... I wasn't able to find that first employee for like a long time. It took me a really long time to find that person. And in the interim, I had hired a a development agency and they were actually building my product. And it's it's just funny to me because since Storybox, that's all I've done is, is worked with outsourced developers and it's worked great. For someone who's not a good manager, 
working with outsourced talent is a fantastic way to really grow to grow a company. And so I look back on that and I think, man, had I just stuck with that development agency, I think it would have been better suited to how I am as a person and a leader. And I kind of went down this path of, you know, building my own engineering team, which led to a lot of hiccups and a lot of pain. And it was because I kind of listened to this thought, well, well, if I'm going to build a successful company in Silicon Valley, I've got to have a development team. And that kind of led me down this path that wasn't good for me. It's really interesting. I, I've come to the conclusion as well that my success will be dependent on my ability to find people with whom I can collaborate. And rather than employing them, it's much better to ask the question, who can solve this problem rather than how can I solve it? And uh, not taking on those significant fixed costs and giving the, um, you the flexibility to be able to use multiple outsource uh, services allows you to scale much, much more quickly uh, with a higher degree of, interestingly, with a higher degree of accountability because those people are not on your payroll um, mm -hmm. and uh, they tend to be a lot more focused on service rather than generating their own tenure. So th that's a really interesting observation. And, and they're, they're infinitely more replaceable. I'll tell you that one of the mindset shifts for me, because I 100% agree with your approach, and it works for me just personality-wise, what it forces me to do when I'm working with someone who's a contractor or a third-party service, I have to start with the assumption they won't be there forever, which means that everything I do with them, I want to document, I want to have processes, I want to have systems. You know, granted, I work for mostly with people for years, but because that's in the back of my mind, if I had to get rid of them, it's not the end of the world to bring on a different company or a different person and have the systems in place and the processes documented. And for some reason, for me with an employee, that's a lot harder. My dependency on them feels a lot stronger to me. How did it change the clarity of your communication? Oh, man, that's such a good question because... You know, one thing, one thing on submarines in, in the Navy in general is that everything is done by procedure. Literally, when you go to the restroom behind the toilet, there is, there is a procedure for flushing the toilet. Like everything <laughs> is written down. And I feel like I've come to be more like that of, and it's not my nature. I'm really, I'm really having to like train myself to do this which is to document everything. And recently I, I read a book called The E-Myth that I would recommend to anyone listening. And one of the things that I took away from that book was when you start a company, you're starting in every role and your job, let's say for sales, I start as a sales rep. I need to document the process of what it is to be a sales rep so that when I hire someone for that or outsource it, I give them that procedure and then I get promoted to sales manager and I have to come up with the script and all the processes for sales manager. And once I have that, I can replace myself with someone else. And so that's probably the biggest shift for me is in my communication is I need to document things. I, I hate to use the word idiot proof, but that's the word that comes to mind is this sense of like, how can I document things so that anyone could follow? How can I make it visual? How can I do things so that I could hand it off to someone and with very little communication, have them follow it? And you know, one thing I've realized about my communication, I hate talking on the phone. I just, you know, I'd just much rather send off an email or a Slack message. And so I've built a team around that where I can just do Slack or email and not have to hop on calls and meetings. I'm rather the opposite. I loathe Slack with a burning passion, <laughs> um, but uh, each to their own. Uh, you might want to check out a chap called David Jennings, J-E-N-Y-N-S, and Michael Gerber in the forward to his book, Systemology, said that David has completed the work that he started in the E-Myth and a really fabulous set of systems. And it's all about creating this flywheel turnkey operation. Um, but systems set you free. Systems are 
incredibly powerful. And what they also allow you to do is push high value activity down the chain of command so that your people end up doing high value work, which is really powerful for retention. The number one reason why people leave a company is that they don't feel like they're doing enough what they really were put on the planet to do, or they're being overburdened. And systems allow you to get a hell of a lot more done. And I'm a big fan of idiot-proofing because I have a very low opinion of us as a species. If there is a way <laughs> to screw things up, we, we will find it. And if there is a systematic approach, and you know, if we look at um, you know, supercarriers, the average age on one of those is 19 years old. Now, given that you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars worth of kit or billions of dollars worth of kit and thousands of people. And, um, you know, it can birth six battleships and 80 helicopters and God knows what else. Uh, if you don't have systems and checklists, things can turn to shit very quickly. And why would you let your business be anything other than a well-run, tightly run ship? Yep. And I will check out the David Jennings, Jennings book the, the the phrase that I've adopted from Jocko Willink, who wrote Extreme Ownership, was discipline equals freedom. And and there's part of me that as a person, part of the reason I sought out an entrepreneurial life is I want more freedom and more autonomy. And so there's part of me that instinctively pushes back on what you're saying, the systems and the structure. There's part of me that like really just wants to be able to do my own thing and not have these constraints around me. It's something I'm actively still working on is reminding myself, no, discipline ultimately does equal more freedom. If I can have these structures in place, if I can have these processes, it does result in more freedom and more autonomy. And like you said, more satisfaction for the people I'm working with because they have the clarity that they're craving. And so I, I just want to highlight that for listeners is it's not, it is not something that comes naturally to me. I'm not a naturally highly structured person, but I'm, I continue to work on it and build it like a muscle because I know how much I need it and how much it would benefit my company. So there's one observation and one caveat in response. The observation is that when you have constraint, it forces you to be creative within those constraints. Mm. And that's incredibly powerful because uh, you can get very overwhelmed by the tyranny of choice. But by having those constraints in place, it forces you to think, well, what can I do within those constraints, and uh, it allows you to, it, it feeds that creativity. There is a caveat, which is that you should always question on a regular basis your processes and your systems, and ask, keep asking yourself, why did we set this up in the first place, and is it still fit for purpose? And I've come across organizations that are doing things the way they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Now, they may have been fit for purpose once, and we see this in sales a lot. The majority of salespeople become functionally illiterate the moment they leave college or university because they do not keep investing in themselves. And sales is an organic process. You need to adapt because God knows your buyers are. Procurement as a discipline is only 20 years old, and they are very innovative. Buyers, since 2010, the context has shifted in the way buyers buy. Now they have the sum total of human knowledge with a few taps to the keyboard and a few clicks of the mouse. They've got access to much closer to what economists would talk about in terms of the perfect market, where they have access to your information, your competitors' information, alternatives who are not direct competition. And if you are not adapting contextually to where your customers are today, you're toast. So tell me this, as an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to not become the VP of everything. Mm. How did you manage to constrain yourself and get out of that trap? You know, first thing I'll say is just in reaction to what you were saying, I really appreciate the way you put that. And I just notice as you're talking, the part of me that gets so exhausted 
thinking that things will always evolve and always change and, and, and gets exhausted thinking about having to continuously maintain and improve these systems. Like there's some aspect of that that's just so overwhelming because I want to build a beautiful machine and then just have that be done. But what, what you're describing, I think, is true, which is like everything has to constantly be questioned, constantly improved and, and built upon. And so, you know, as you, as you ask about VP of everything, like I'm realizing that's something that I have to, I have to be really vigilant about watching and myself because I like to control things. I like to do, and I, I, I really like to work. If I have a few hours on the weekend, rather than go and, you know, watch a movie, I'd much rather like get something done. It's very energizing. <laughs> and I think that that can be an asset, but I think it can also be a really big liability, especially today when hustling is glorified, when when mm-hmm. workaholism, I think in popular media is set up as a something to aspire to and respect rather than in my view, it's, it's, it's stupid. It like sucks the creative life out of you. And like, we need breaks to replenish. So I think that one thing that's helped me to become less VP of everything, I, I still have a lot of tendency towards that, but one is having something outside of work that excites me. And, you know, I have a, a two-year-old son and I, that, that gets me very excited. But I, I also wanted to say that I've, this year gotten much more back into running. It's funny. It's something very tiny. It's 30 to 60 minutes of my day. It's a very tiny piece of it. But I find that having something that I'm excited about that has nothing to do with work, it helps me, you know, I like today, normally I'd be running right now. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I have a break at this time. I'm going to go for my run. Then I'm going to listen to an audio book, the sci-fi book that I really like. It's enjoyable. And so having something that pulls me away from work, not only is that good for me, but I, I always come back with more energy, with more thoughts, with more chutzpah. <laughs> I think one other thing is that, you know, the E-Myth and another book called Company of One, I think it's helping me redefine what I want to build with Captivate. And I don't have any aspirations of raising outside investment. I don't have any aspirations of going public. I want to build a company that I find fulfilling, that gives me a great life. And that's pretty much it. And so that means I don't want to build a cage. I want to build a business that if I need to go off into the wilderness for a week, I can do that. Like I don't want to build something where I have to be involved. And so I think that's the biggest thing that gets me thinking on a daily basis of like, okay, in the short term, maybe I have to do this. I don't want to do it for more than six months. Like I need to find a system or process or person to take it over so that I'm no longer vital for anything. You know, that's just my aspiration. You'll definitely enjoy systemology in that case. And uh, what you just alluded to there is the most important question that any leader or founder can ask, which is who? Who knows how to do this? Who can do this better than me? Who can I train in order that I can step away from this? Because the minute something requires you, you become a bottleneck. And many organizations get stifled by bottlenecks. I see many companies that are limited in their growth because the founder keeps them that way, because they try and be the VP of everything. And learning how to let go requires a certain discipline because uh, very often there's um, a script which runs, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing it yourself. But it should be, it's worth doing well. And often you are not the person who can do it best. And you look at people like Dan Sullivan. In fact, he wrote a book called Who Not How. And in fact, he got someone else to write that book. And he's a co-author, uh, but someone else did all the work because they built on his concept. And what I've found in the work that I've been doing, especially in the last six months or so, is that by collaborating with the best that I can find in the market, I can take on companies of billions of dollars and do a better job than they can, because everybody who I bring to the table 
is not only an A player, but they are world-class instead of the A player being the person who leads the sale, a B-plus player leading the project, and B-minuses and Cs doing the fulfillment. Everyone on the team is an A player. So the customer's success is more or less guaranteed, but their outcomes are what we focus on. And again, I think it's really important. I love the fact that what you're trying to build is a strong business that's sustainable, built on strong fundamentals with great processes, great people, and uh, focused on the execution of your customers' success and outcomes. And that's refreshing to hear from a tech founder because most of them have been seduced by the unicorn and the rainbow. But that worshipping at the church of finance I think has destroyed many, many businesses. And I fundamentally believe is flawed because it's destroying um, the environment for the customer and for the employees. And a business that is focused solely on money is a bad business. A business that is focused on the customer and creating a great environment for its people is a great business and the byproduct is profit. We're speaking the same language. It makes me so excited to hear that because my biggest complaint is that I feel like as a society and in this moment in history, the snapshot that people get sadly everywhere, social media, TV, magazines, everywhere, it's all about a certain image of what success should look like. And, you know, in my world, in technology, success is measured by the number of employees, your headcount, the amount of funding you raise, if you go public or what your valuation is, all of these things, which work great for a very small number of people and companies, in my opinion. And I agree. And what I feel like both personally and professionally, the biggest thing that I'm working on as a human being is, can I be focused on this moment and what my actions are right now? Can I completely detach from the outcome of what I'm trying to go after? And from my standpoint, that's like, okay, today is Monday. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do the best work that I can, given what's going on in my life. I'm going to give my customers the best support. I'm going to do my best on sales. I'm going to give my absolute best. And I don't control the outcome on everything. There's so much luck involved. There's so much about industry trends, market trends. I learned that for sure with my first company, Storybox. No matter how much I work, no matter how much I want success to look a certain way, I can't control that. But I can control my actions. And I feel like, you know, with Storybox, certainly, and with many people, their companies, where I got into trouble was I was taking actions and I was committed to a certain outcome. I was committed to what success looked like, which was raising 10 million in funding, getting acquired, going public, all of these things. And my version of things is that Storybox had its own path. Maybe its path was just to be a 40-person company that wasn't known around the world, that served a lot of companies and gave me and my employees and our customers great lives. Maybe that was the purpose of this. But in bastardizing it to fit another mold, I expected too much of it or I tried to make it something it wasn't. And that's where it got into trouble. And I wish I had a better way to say that, but it's just this desire for people to let both their own career and their company to have its own life, to have its own path, rather than white knuckling and forcing it to meet some predefined role. Well, I think I might be able to help you in this definition because this is something that is very near and dear to my heart. I've launched a global community called Sales of Force for Good specifically Mm. to tackle these issues. And the first question that we're working on is what needs to change in executive compensation and culture for Mm. any lasting positive change in sales and marketing to have any sustainability? Um, And the challenge here is that if the founder and the board is fixated on getting that valuation, raising that funding, uh, achieving that exit, then the attention moves from the customer, which is where it needs to be, to the exit. And no amount of saying the right thing 
is going to make the blindest bit of difference when you're behind on your quarterly quota and you've got to report to your shareholders who are then tearing you a new one and saying, well, either you fix this or we're going to replace you. And then, you know, you lose your baby as well. And so I think that's crucial. I think we also need to tackle these issues with investors and we need to be able to prove the ROI so that they get their money, but we need to attract a different type of investor. Um, 85% of CEOs are from a finance background. Most investors are from a finance background. And what they forget is that people are our greatest asset. They're an investment, but they sit on the balance sheet as a cost. And at the end of every quarter, you have senior management railing on middle management, who then beat on the sales operation, who then go and put pressure on the customer. They're under pressure to bring in new logos. They're under pressure to hit a revenue target. And honestly, who gives a damn about revenue? What we want is profit. And you only get profit if you make more money than you spend. But when you look at the amount of money that people are blowing, marketing, in all honesty, if you removed marketing from most companies, I promise you, it wouldn't make the blindest bit of difference. All that would happen is your balance sheet would look healthier um, because 98.81% uh, of all digital advertising gets one click or less. That's 4.2 quadrillion adverts served up that get one click or none. Then on average, your email opt-in lists generate about 2.5% open rates. And whatever the open rate is, it's a fraction when it comes to people who actually purchase. On cold calling, on average, first dial rate to second meeting, which is actually a more important metric than number of uh, effectives or number of first meetings, uh, is 0.03%. All those dials generate only 0.03% generate a second meeting. Now, if you're not advancing sales, all you're doing is wasting an awful lot of resource. If your marketing is throwing 1,000 leads into the top of the funnel, but only six buy, that's 994 that salespeople have had to chase and bother and interrupt and go nowhere with. So you look at the inordinate waste. And I think one of the challenges here is we are not asking the right questions of ourselves as leaders within the business in terms of what is the outcome we're really trying to achieve. Your thoughts? I think that's so great. The, the book that came to mind is, uh, I forget the author, but it's the, the, the title is The One Thing. And the premise is basically starting your day saying, he phrases it more eloquently, but it's some to the extent of like, what's the one thing that by doing today, everything else will be easier. And so when I hear those numbers, which are crazy, I just think, man, email blasts are not my first priority. Cold calls are not going to be my first priority. If the yield is that low, that's not the one thing that's going to result in greatest profit for my company. But there are things that are more likely to do that. And so I like what you're saying. And to me, it's this reminder to like take a, for me to take a breath and slow down. Like so much of marketing mistakes and so much of company mistakes for me are driven by a sense of should. Well, I should have an email newsletter. I should be cold calling. I should be spending money on advertising. All of these shoulds that aren't really true for me, my company, or where I'm at today versus just slowing down, taking a breath and asking, what's the highest leverage use of my time? Maybe it's using Airtable or Zappy or Monday.com to automate things so I don't need as many people. That would certainly make me more profitable. Or maybe it would be reaching out to people I know to see if they know someone who could use my services. That might be a good use of time that would yield sales. So what I like about what you're saying is the slowing down and the questioning of what is really important for my company right now. One other thing I would build on that is that we need to spend more time partnering with our customers. And I think in 35 years, I've come across less than one handful of marketers who actually speak to customers on a regular basis. I can think of three, maybe four. 
And why, why are they not speaking to customers? Why are executives not speaking to customers? Customers will tell you how to sell to them. They'll tell you what they want. They'll tell you uh, what products and services you need to evolve. Speaking to unhappy customers, according to Salesforce's research that came out in December, increases your product development cycle speed by 600%. So go and speak to people who are pissed off. But again, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And too few organizations, revenue operations, are spending time talking to customers. They're just blasting them with assumptive content, which is generally pretty damn awful. If I were to ask you, Justin, how many email lists have you opted into willingly? (laughs) Probably one or two, if that. And how many of those do you look forward to receiving emails from? Probably just one of them. <laughs> and how often do those that what from even from that one, do they get put into the category? Looks interesting. Must get to that later, and you never do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. All these companies are spending a fortune acquiring email uh, email addresses. Now, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't work, but the problem is the context has shifted and we're still operating on old paradigms. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because I love what you do at Captivate. Why don't you take a, a minute or two just to explain what you do? Yeah, and I'll, I'll put it in the context of what you just said, which, which right now the working, working title I'm using for it is, is top of mind marketing. And so what I, what I saw with my own podcast, with what you're doing was we have great vehicles for putting information out to niche communities, people are, who are interested in very narrow topics. And, you know, like I, I listened to a podcast about outdoor survival. There's probably not a ton of people listening to that, but I love it. I love it. I listen to every minute, every episode. And so what I saw was like, wow, these are great podcast webinars serve this. And most of us don't have an hour to devote to listening to something like this. Like in the conversation you and I are having, there are a dozen gems. There's a dozen 30-second clips that communicate a point really effectively, minute clips or a quote or whatever else. And so what I thought is, man, there's got to be a way to take a podcast, to take a webinar, to find those gems to make it compelling for whatever channels matter, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, whatever you care about, slice it up and put it in that format and then give more content for companies to push out. And what I love about this approach is that first of all, it's 100% about adding value. It's not the person talking about their company, their product, their demo, their stats, any of that stuff. It's let me give you knowledge that helps you in your life, in your day, in your work. Let me add value to to you for free. It's very concise. What I tell our clients is, especially for something like LinkedIn, is look, show up two, three times a week and add value. Give them knowledge. Give them a video that's helpful. Give them a a graphic that's helpful. And six months from now, when someone is in need of what you're providing, you're going to be top of mind. They built up a relationship with you. They've seen you day in, day out, showing up and adding value. They might not convert to a customer tomorrow, but six months when they're ready, they will. And I just personally like that approach more than emailing people, hounding people, cold calling, advertising. Why not just build up thought leadership? Why not just make it your intention to help people to add value and your name stays in the back of their mind. And if you're right for them, eventually they may work with you. Like that's that's kind of the premise behind Captivate. Well, uh, again, let, let me just reinforce what you've just said. If anyone hasn't yet read it, then you have to get hold of a book called Demand Side Sales by Bob Mester, M-O-E-S-T-A. And uh, Bob uh, maps out how the context has changed in terms of the way buyers buy. And he looks at the demand side. And in phases one and two, they have a first thought where they're making space for solving a particular problem. And then they move into passive looking where they're learning how. And this is exactly the point where Justin is talking about. You need to engage with people where they are. Don't expect them to meet you where you want them to be. 
you need to be providing them with useful, insightful, applicable content so that when they move into active looking, where they're starting to look for possibilities and ways of solving their problem, then they are open to having a buying-selling conversation. And in fact, my own experience has been very uh, much along these lines. Of my six paying clients at the moment, two of them have been 10 and 16 years following my content. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can make a living necessarily waiting for 10 to 16 years, but I've built up a body of work. I've intentionally gone out to try and deliver value. And they then came to me and not once did either of those two like, comment, or share a single piece of my content, but they consumed it consistently. And then when they moved into deciding and they were making those trade-offs in terms of what I had and what other people could offer, they ended up making the decision to buy from me because they already knew me well. They'd seen me on video. They'd seen, uh, they'd listened to my podcast. They'd read my content. And you need to understand that buying journey because since 2010, the context has changed. You can no longer do it through brute force marketing or massive interruptive uh, cold calling. You can play the numbers game, but that is incredibly wasteful and results in more loss than win. Dan Kennedy said it better than me. The price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And the problem that I see endemic across all industries, but tech is particularly bad at this, is the insistence on broadcasting content about their ugly child. Um, you know, talk about their product and willy wave and say how great they are. The customer doesn't care. And when your salespeople turn up and show photos of your head office, that's a guarantee that you're going to switch people off. I I've interviewed a dozen CXOs in the last month or so, and every one of them, without fail, looks forward to a salesperson turning up in the hope they will leave smarter than when uh, before the salesperson turned up. But that's a very disappointing experience for most of them because they don't leave smarter. They just feel like someone's been peddling stuff to them. So in terms of what you've learned around sales, I'm really curious to learn what you've taken into Captivate from your Storybox experience. It's funny that you say that because I think it's a, a discovery and process. And, and as you were saying that about the way that sales has changed, what I found myself thinking about was, let's say, the used car salesman. For me growing up, that was always this caricature of sales. But I thought, man, if this person, you know, you'd hear these stories of someone walks in and the, the salesperson does, you know, magic trick basically to make them walk out buying a car or the sense that a good salesperson could sell anything to anyone at any time. And I feel like that's such a destructive myth it seems wrong. Like the thought is, it's all about me. I want this sale. So therefore, whether or not this car is right for you, you're walking out having purchased it versus flipping the script of like, what is, what is actually right for the other person? They might not be in the stage where they need my product, where they're willing to buy it. Like you said, 10 years of getting to know you and I think that that to me feels better. It's more about saying, you know, because I've, I, with Storybox, I have written the dozens and dozens of follow ups. Hey, Marcus, it was great talking two months ago. Is now a good time to buy our stuff? It's annoying to send and it's annoying to, to receive. What I like more is this thought of like just adding value, adding value, adding value, and letting people buy when the time is right, if the match is correct, even, and the willingness to say that, look, this is not going to be right for everyone. And I'm okay with that. You've touched on a concept that's near and dear to my heart, which I picked up from one of my mentors, a guy called Simon Bowen. And it's this concept of buyer safety. It, mm. Buyers deserve to feel safe in the presence and company of a salesperson. And unfortunately, very few can because salespeople are often self-centered and selfish, which causes prospects to be closed and guarded instead of being open and authentic. We need to be customer-centric. We need to stop being transactional 
And we need to focus on delivering the customer's success, which means focusing on their outcomes, not ours, on creating value for them, on co-developing solutions. And, you know, I'm working on a sales process at the moment to become the CRO for a company. And we've spent a couple of hours going through what it is that he wants, his vision, his direction. I've given him my notes so that he can tell me what needs to go into the proposal. And his fingerprints are going to be all over it. Now, whether it turns out to be a, a, you know, a relationship that goes into a transaction or not, I'm not really that interested because what I'm interested in is him being a customer in three, four, five, ten years' time. I'm not interested in making the, the sale. I'm interested in a lifetime customer relationship. And it's forced me to think very differently. And I, I remember that, you know, it's, it's not even that long ago where I was more fixated on trying to hit a, a notional number than on my customer's success. But what I've always derived the greatest satisfaction from is when they come back to me six months, three years, nine years later, and talk to me about the impact working with me had on them and the freedom it's given them, the choices it's given them. That, to me, is a much more satisfying sale because that's when the sale is complete. The transaction is over when the money hits your account, but the sale is complete when the customer comes back and says, Justin, best thing we ever did was working with you guys over at Captivate. Fabulous, thank you. And uh, to my mind, what's been lost because of this obsession with growth at any cost, logo acquisition, exit, is we've forgotten that selling is a service business. It's a service profession. And there's no shame in serving others. In fact, it's you know, our highest calling. I can't remember quite who said it, but I've, uh, in fact, I can. Stephen Covey said, I, I remember meeting Stephen Covey at an event. And I asked him a very mediocre question, but he came back with the best answer and it stuck with me forever, which is the greatest among us serve the most. And I definitely feel that's been lost. And it's, I also noticed the inherent neediness that I bring into a conversation when I'm looking at meeting, like you said, that whatever the arbitrary number is that I've set for this month. Because now I'm needing money from this person rather than showing up in service and also showing up with an openness to like, where does this conversation need to go? Maybe we have an exchange, we like each other as people, and we're not a good fit professionally, and you go your way. Maybe I make a connection, maybe something comes here. But when I come in with an agenda of I need your money and success is you becoming a client. It makes me less empathetic. It makes me less receptive to what they're actually saying. It makes it less of a dance and more of this brute force. And so I really like that thought of service. And, and I will tell you that, you know, as I post content on social media, I've acquired customers who never once liked it, never once commented on it. But like you said, they'll say like, hey, I've been watching what you've been doing for months now. I really like it. And I, I'm wondering if there's a way to work together. That to me feels so much cleaner and so much better than me hounding people to buy my stuff or going into a call with a binary success failure view rather than like meeting another human being and seeing how can I be of most service to this person on this call. And if that's becoming a, a client, that's great. But if not, that's great too. And an openness to that. And, and you know, I, I think you said it well. It's like this perversion of letting growth could dictate everything else and growth compromise service and support and all of these things that should go along with it. So I, I'm a big fan of how you've defined salespeople. I think that's a much better definition than what I see most of the time. This then raises yet another question in terms of how do we define what good looks like in sales? Because historically, it's been competitive, will to win, high ambition and drive. I'm questioning that. I'm questioning whether or not quotas are something that actually are destructive. 
the idea that salespeople should be motivated by money. Uh, virtually every salesperson I have ever met who is motivated by money is not someone I want to do business with. And I, I was speaking to a friend of mine uh, only last week, and he had to step in because uh, someone else was away. And someone in his team had uh, handed on an account to him to deal with while she was away. And it turns out she just blatantly lied to the customer in order to try and make the sale. And it's left the business exposed in a dangerous and bad way, because if I were the customer, I'd be looking for uh, restitution. And the reputation damage is shocking. But there, there will be lots of people out there who'll listen to this and think, well, yeah, that's all fine in the land of fairies and unicorns. But we live in the real world. What would you say to them? The example that immediately comes to mind is, you know, when my son was learning to walk and where we started the conversation with like, let me just focus on my actions right now. So of course, as he's learning to walk, my wife and I are supportive. We're holding his hands. We're encouraging him. But I never once said, hey, by his 18th birthday, you know, 18 month old birthday, he needs to be walking. By two years old, he needs to be walking. I didn't set these arbitrary deadlines. I took the action every day that I knew would help him walk, encouragement and practice. And I had no attachment to the outcome. I remember I, I met a guy whose son was, you know, two and a half and wasn't walking. And he just laughed it off and said, I'm pretty sure by the time he's 18 years old and going to college, he'll be able to walk. I'm not forcing my timeline on it. And that's what I think with sales is like, focus on the right action. The right action is doing your homework on the person you're meeting with, being curious, being open to their experience, really learning what their pain points are, hearing what's worked, what wasn't, hearing their response to what you have to offer. That to me is the right action. The outcome it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's T.S. Eliot, I think, that said it's like ours is, the, it, ours is the trying, like the rest is in our business. It's something like that, but, you know, infinitely more eloquent. But I think about that a lot yeah. with this, which is like, if you take the right action every, in every moment, it will lead to something good. It may look different than what you think is right. It may look different than what you're aspiring to. But if you are doing the fundamentals correctly, success is inevitable. And I think most of us give up prematurely or most of us are looking for quote unquote hacks to get there faster rather than just show up, do what's right and, and let things go at their own pace. And, and social media for me is a deterrent to that because I judge people's posts and I, I judge their success. I judge the journey they've been on to get there. I start getting out of my swim lane and saying like, oh, I need that. Rather than saying, this is my swim lane. I'm going to do what's right and let it unfold as it unfolds, but don't try to force it to be someone else's story. Don't try and force it to be a Wall Street Journal headline. Let it be what it is and avoid this these luring hacks and shortcuts you know, that are the, the steroids equivalent of growth that are short-term benefit for long-term pain and loss. How dangerous do you think comparison is? Because I, I think very often we're, we compare ourselves with other people who are ahead of where we want to be. And that kind of success envy, I think, is exceptionally dangerous. But I'm really curious about your thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's. I think that comparison is the thing that I struggle most with. And this is after a decade of meditation and personal growth work. It takes... After a decade of that, it takes 10 seconds on LinkedIn and seeing someone's post to be thrown off my game and to become comparative. And I, I think that in some context, it's great, right? When I see someone build a company from nothing into you know a $100 million empire, there are times when I see that and it's inspirational. There are times when I see that as motivational because I'm like, oh man, I want to do that too. Or, oh man, I see the way that this person did their job every day out of the limelight and it led to something great. So there's certainly ways in which this can be fuel, but I find that it also can lead to what, what I identify with as like this victim state of like, oh man, this person won the lottery and I didn't. Woe is me. 
And there's ways in which that saps, saps my energy, saps my creativity. It gets me stopping thinking about what you talked about, Marcus, of serving. And it starts making me think of like, oh, what have I done wrong that my company isn't worth $10 billion or whatever else it is? For me, the antidote for that is a couple things. One is gratitude. The number of times where I have to stop and be like, okay, I've, first of all, I'm living in a house. <laughs> There are so many people on our planet that are homeless, right? I'm not worried about what I'm going to do for lunch, right? I've got my microwavable meal sitting up in my refrigerator. That's great. How many people on the planet are worried about eating today? So I think gratitude can help snap me out of that. And then I think another one is just, you know, just being open to my own journey and just trying to get back to what's my right action. Yeah, it's great to see this person succeeded. What's my top three today? I got to get this email out to a client. I need to fix this product problem. That's my world. That's where I need to focus. And I think that you know, news and social media can be a distraction when it lures us into that um, unfair comparison. And there's this great quote that it's like, you know, we 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 can judge others where they're at. Like we we judge the final product not seeing all the ingredients that have gone into it. And it's like very alluring, especially on social media to see the end result, but not see the full story, not see what's gone into it. And, and that's why I just want to focus on what I'm building, my own recipe. And like you said, you've, you've, ref, you've referenced so many great books and mentors. That's good comparison. That's a good way to learn from others and take what's applicable to us and then go back to building but the aspect at which it becomes voyeuristic to me is not helpful. Voyeuristic, absolutely. So one of the lessons that I've learned as well is that when you do spend a lot of time on social media and you consume specific types of content, it's very easy to fall into the echo chamber trap. How do you make sure that your perspective isn't being warped by the echo chamber? You know, for a while, I mean, especially in American politics, there was a while where I was just glued to the news on an hourly basis for, for years. And I would go to, you know, news sites that don't represent my view of the world. And I would literally read their headlines and just try to see what that narrative is. Or I, you know, I have, you know, like everyone, I have friends on Facebook that have dramatically different political views. And I'd, I'd read what they were saying. I'd read the comments. And that was my sense to try to get a sense of like, okay, what's the frustration here? What's the need that's not being met? I do less of that now. I think that for me, I feel like the way that I'm trying to avoid the echo chamber today is to try to just show up with whoever I'm at and just be open to what's going on with them. And so if I'm talking with someone there is still like a tightness, right? When they, I'm personally a big advocate of the COVID-19 vaccine. And so when I meet someone who's like very anti-vaccine, there's part of me that like clenches up with like, oh my God, how could this be possible? And I'm trying to just kind of relax that and be curious and learn more and not judge it and not try to make it wrong, not try and convince them, but try to be more understanding and, and genuinely learn from them. I don't do a great job of it, but that's what I'm trying to do to get out of the echo chamber is just like, can I have an actual conversation with a human being who believes something that I find difficult to, to have them believe? It's really interesting in terms of hiring. I think it's also really important to hire people with very different backgrounds and different perspectives. And um, one of my particular bugbears is the group think that tends to come from hiring people just like ourselves. And as I look at some of the really successful businesses, they're made up of very diverse teams, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different gender, different orientation, different histories, different religious backgrounds. And from that, what you get is range. You get range of perspective. And that enriches your overall solution. It also makes it really difficult as a manager, because if you've got personalities in there who are wildly different to yours, it can be very difficult to get out of the way. And I think that requires a, a huge amount of discipline and intellectual humility. So this is where I think it's so important to have a good coaching culture. And if you don't have the ability to coach yourself, then bring in externals. 
invite help from outside, have accountability boards, have a brain trust, go out and seek the help third parties whose history is your future. And don't just take at face value what people tell you, question it. You know, in that crucible, you end up getting really good creative ideas. And when you have all this different input, eventually you have to make that decision, when you're a decision. But I think a lot of people are afraid of being challenged and afraid of hiring people who are different. So again, now that this is your second time round, and I know that you're doing a lot of, uh, through outsourcing, what are the qualities that you tend to look for in people that you're bringing either into your business directly or as externals? I think comfort with ambiguity is a big one. <laughs> I think that um, I can only provide so much clarity and so much certainty. And I think that the biggest thing that stands out is people who understand that they'll have incomplete information and incomplete oversight and are still able to do their job, still able to make decisions. If I have to be giving someone, you know, I I can think of so many people that I do not work with anymore where they just had a hundred questions at the outset and I just, I didn't have room, (laughs) you know, it, it was taking up more time than if I had just done it myself. And it's not trying to make that wrong, right? It's just saying that like, hey, where I'm at as a leader, where I'm at in my life, I don't have a tremendous amount of time apart from the procedures I'm giving people to handhold them. And so it's just not a good fit. And so they didn't have enough um, ability to go out and make reasonable decisions or find ways to solve a problem without me telling them what to do. So that's, that's one really big thing. I think a second one though is good good people. You know, I feel like, I've worked with and for people where it's just it's just not a good dynamic. Like they are either really dictator, they're like a dictator, or they, you know, they just, you know, even with the way in which they exchange things, there's just not common courtesy. There's just like an abruptness that I find off-putting. And so I try to work with people where there's some understanding on both sides. You know, if they are running behind on something because their kid just threw up, it's like, oh, I get it. That's life. Yeah, you could take another two hours. And same thing for me, if I'm late on something, being able to have understanding. So I think that just that like good person vibe is is another big one that I look for. Excellent. Justin, sadly, we've come to the top of the hour. I could talk to you for hours. So I hope that you'd be willing to come back. Absolutely. Excellent. So tell me this, what what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? The biggest one for me is is how to prioritize. And, you know, with a two-year-old son, gone are the days where I can work 18, 20-hour days. It's just not feasible for me, especially with COVID and not having childcare and tossing my son back and forth between my wife and I between calls. And so I think that the thing I'm, I'm having to adapt to, it's like, I, it's embarrassing to say this, but it's the first time in my life where I can't do everything I need to do. And so what I have to do every day is start with the biggest priorities and be okay with some emails not being answered, being okay with some phone calls not being returned, being okay not getting everything done. And I'm like a zero inbox guy. And so it really causes physical discomfort to see these messages that aren't responded to. But it goes back to, you know, if it's not the top three priorities, that's okay. And if I lose a friend over that, or if someone's not understanding, that's okay. Like I really need to be brutal about saying, these are the things that for myself, my family and my business matter. And I only have so much room today. And if things take longer, that's okay. If things don't get done, that's okay. And it's been really, really challenging for me to let go because I want to get everything done right now. And that's just not my world possibility right now. And um, so I think that's what I'm having to, to adapt to is prioritize and let go. Very good. Okay. So you've got a golden ticket and you could whisper in the ear of the idiot Justin, age 23. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he'd have probably ignore, but would have benefited him? Slow down. Just slow down. Don't be in a so, so big of a rush to do things, to get places. Like just slow down, let things unfold at their own pace. It's going to be okay. And, you know, I think part of it is 
I started to view life as a lily pad of going from one lily pad, you know, a little frog hopping from one lily pad to the next. Stop trying to jump all the way to the other side of the river. Just take one lily pad at a time and trust you're going in the right direction. Excellent. Again, I think that slow down to speed up is really important. And I, I think a fundamental part of uh, growing up is recognizing that failure in role is almost never fatal. It's so long as you understand that there is a lesson to be had out of it, and it's part of the human condition. If failure mm-hmm. is universal, we all do it. And beating yourself up about it isn't going to help. Just admitting that you've messed up is a huge step forward in terms of maturity. And I certainly used to find that very, very difficult. Yeah, I like the thought of normalizing Um, failure too. You know, just making it, like you said, everyone fails, right? And it doesn't, yeah, I think that that's something we overlook in, in society. One thing I love in Ray Dalio's book, Principles, is they keep a failure log. And you only get punished for hiding failure, never for failing. And I think that's a really healthy uh, approach. And that way, everybody is learning. And everyone learns to take risks as well. Because if you punish failure, then people will stop taking risks. And you need people to take risks in an entrepreneurial environment. Even in a corporate environment, you need to take risks. Otherwise, you end up becoming very stagnant and uh, unimaginative. But Failure has always been my best teacher. I cannot remember any significant victory uh, that really taught me a lot. You know, lots of failures led to them, but it's my drubbings, the, you know, the good kickings that I got from uh, screwing up, uh, from customers pushing back, from losing deals and so on, that have taught me the best lessons in life. Same here, same here. And, it, and it's you know, I respect even more now when I have mentors and advisors that have wisdom to impart because I know behind every kernel of wisdom is some major scar. Like they earned that wisdom <laughs> through a colossal mistake or just something that was painful. And it, and I think I used to just fixate on the wisdom rather than realizing the attribute behind it, which was persistence and learning and an ability of resilience to get back up. All of these characteristics that led to that wisdom, uh, I, I respect it even more now. Excellent. If you could recommend uh, you know, books, audios, videos that you think other entrepreneurs should really pay heed to, what would you suggest? Best one I've read recently is Company of One. It's just a great blueprint. If if you are in the subset of entrepreneurs who want to build a company more in line with, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that Marcus and I are on the same wavelength on this. Uh, if you're going against the conventional wisdom of bigger is better, Company of One is exceptional. The other one we already mentioned is called E-Myth. And then a third one is called Big Magic. It's by Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which I haven't read, but the book is all about the art of creative living. And for me, I view entrepreneurs as extremely creative beings. And it's about feeding your creativity, not putting pressure on your creativity, like so many great things. It's one of the few books that I've read multiple times. And then last one I'll just say is that... um, you know, most of the time I listen to audiobooks and podcasts. It's it's science fiction. It's fantasy. It has nothing to do with business, and I'm a big believer. It it helps to just have um, other things that you're thinking about, other interests. Absolutely. Uh, what, what's the book that you're reading at the moment? The Magicians. It's almost like Harry Potter, as if Harry Potter oh, was. It, um, it's a Netflix series now. Is there really? It maybe. Um, yeah. Let me see. Yeah, let me yeah. see who the author is. I just found out about it. I've never. I didn't even know there was a show, but it's called. It's called. It's Lev Grossman, the Magicians, and it's great. It's kind of like you know Harry Potter, where instead of you know what Harry Potter is, it's people using magic to do you know drugs and sleep around. It's just I don't know. It just feels like a much more realistic yeah. portrayal of what it would be like if you had these powers. Absolutely, there's definitely a Netflix series on it. Uh, that's great. Fabulous. So Justin, how can people get hold of you? Two ways. One is uh, my website, captivate.ai, or my email is just justin at captivate.ai. Or second one is LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive on that. If uh, Justin Nasiri, 
you'll see my name in the show notes. If you just Google that in LinkedIn, you'll, you'll find me that way. Excellent. Justin Nasseri, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company, typically in the 10 to $50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hyper growth without the wheels and wings coming off, and you want to create a company where your employees are highly engaged and highly productive, and you've got clients who stick with you year after year, and you're profitable, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com, and you can contact me via direct message on LinkedIn as well. Now, if you are frankly pissed off that sales has been hijacked by shysters and charlatans, and you want to turn it back into a genuine service profession, then we've launched a global community. It's not just me. We've got 30 volunteers at the moment. About 300 people attend our online events. And it's called Sales of Force for Good. And the mission is to remind us that we exist because of, not in spite of the customer. They're not an inconvenience. We exist because of them. And we exist to serve them. And our objective is to raise the selling profession and make it an aspirational career choice and a great place for the next generation of sellers and sales leaders. So if you're interested in that, check out the hashtag SAFFG or hashtag sales of force for good. And I've come up with a slightly better one, which is hashtag pro customer. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.